What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope all of you are having an amazing day today. I want to talk about three things specifically on this podcast. Number one, I want to talk about how Live Golf has transformed the PGA Tour over the last year. Number two, the details behind Jalen Hurts' historic new contract. And number three, the last-minute bid on the Washington Commanders that's actually a fake bid. So let's get right to it. All right, let's start today's podcast by talking about the PGA Tour. The PGA Tour has been around for nearly 100 years, but there has never been a better time in history, in my opinion, to be a professional golfer than today. So for those that don't know, the PGA Tour has 47 official tournaments on its schedule this year, and they'll hand out more than $550 million in prize money. Last weekend, the final round of the Masters Tournament averaged more than 12 million viewers, making it the most watched golf tournament in the past five years. And then when you look at the golfers, John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler, they're about to break the single season earnings record on the PGA Tour of $14 million. And the craziest part, there's still five months left in the season. And perhaps the most important part to me, and the most impressive part really, is that all of this is happening. All the buzz around the PGA, all the money going around, everything like that. And Tiger Woods is really not even a factor. If you think about it, when is the last time that we heard anything, right? Obviously, he's a big name at the Masters, but outside of that, He's not competing in tournaments. He's not contending at the end of weekends. He's not in the Netflix series, et cetera. And the PGA is hotter than it's ever been. So my whole point on this podcast is simple. None of this would have happened without Live Golf. And I want to be careful about this, right? Because some people love Live Golf. Some people hate it. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of middle ground. But I'm somewhere in between, right? I, I think that the golfers obviously have the opportunity to do what they want. Some of these people have reasons. Some people have admitted that it's about money. Some people on the PGA side just said that, hey, I don't want to do it. I rather the legacy. There's people like Will Zalatoris who turned down over $100 million and is now hurt, but he still doesn't regret these decisions, right? So some people have their reasons and so forth. Ultimately, though, I think the competition is what has transformed the PGA Tour. And I think it's increasingly obvious over the last year, at least, that none of this would have happened if it wasn't for Live Golf. So some of the players have even admit this. This isn't a hot take or anything like that. There are PGA Tour players that have said, look, these changes are great for us, and they wouldn't have happened without Live Golf. Competition bred innovation. And I think if you look at Live Golf, look, we all know the story by now. It's a Saudi-backed professional golf league. They turned the world freaking upside down last year. They spent more than $800 million on golfers like Phil Mickelson, Dustin Johnson, Cameron Smith, Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau, et cetera, to leave the PGA Tour. And if one of the most interesting things is if you look at the Forbes list of highest paid golfers last year, the Live guys represented four out of the top five. So Phil Mickelson was number one highest paid golfer last year, $138 million. DJ Dustin Johnson was two, $97 million. Bryson, three, eighty-six. Brooks, four at $69 million. And I'm sure you can guess who number five was, Tiger Woods, with essentially 100% of his income coming off the course in endorsements. So four out of the top five golfers in earnings last year were on the Live Tour. Obviously, the majority of their money was coming through the guaranteed payments that most of them received up front. It is a huge amount of money. No one is doubting that. Now, the live model is interesting. I'll admit that, right? It's different is what we would call it. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Whatever. It's 54 holes, no cut, guaranteed fields. You know who's going to show up. Huge prize money. They have music blasting. They have games there. There's a team structure, and there's a bunch of other stuff going on that's different than the PGA. Now, the PGA Tour responded to this by banning everyone. They said, hey, if you go over there, you're banned from the PGA. You can't come over here and play. They can play in the majors because the majors are not run by the PGA Tour. But 
The viewership on Live, it's year two now, hasn't been great. The Live Tour signed a deal with CW to be on broadcast television on cable this past year. So their first two tournaments or three tournaments of the year have been on CW and the CW app. And they've averaged between 400,000 to 500,000. The opening weekend had 537,000 viewership over the days. And then second weekend had 409,000. So somewhere between 400 and 500,000 viewers are watching these tournaments. Now, that's a drastic increase from the previous year on YouTube, where the average tournament got 67,000 viewers. Maybe this drops a little bit throughout the year as more tournaments happen. That's what happened last year, right? The first couple tournaments on YouTube got hundreds of thousands of viewers and then it dropped off and it was significantly less by the end of the year. Maybe that happens. Maybe it doesn't. 400 to 500,000 is, is okay. I don't think it's great. And I'll explain why in a second. But one of the things to keep in mind is that these events drastically trail marquee PGA events. So if you just look at the RBC heritage that happened this past weekend, 4.2 million people watched the final round. On Sunday, 4.2 million people watched it. Now, of course, it was a big deal. Fitzpatrick and Speed were in a playoff. It was great golf. I watched it. Amazing. But 4.2 million people watched that versus 400K to 500K for Live. And then when you add in the fact that Live Golf is already reportedly cutting expenses across the board, I know people have already seen and I've heard from people that work or, or are involved somewhat directly with the tour that they're no longer covering travel expenses for players and their caddies and their families. They reportedly cut healthcare and retirement benefits for the broadcast crew. They've done other stuff like people were complaining about the media food and stuff like that. Whatever. The point is being that there's rumors that they're cutting expenses. Some people around the golf world actually don't think that Liv will make it another year or two. But this is pure speculation. We don't know. Again, my point is simple. That the PGA Tour, though, has benefited dramatically. And let me explain how. So to counter Liv's new format and their seemingly bottomless pit of cash from Saudi, the PGA Tour and Commissioner Jay Monahan have made a number of significant changes this year. I think the most important thing that they did was they added a slate of 17 designated events. Now, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this, and I'm going to try to keep it as simple as possible because I know a lot of people listening to this might not even play golf. They may now follow the PGA. They may have no idea what's going on, but don't worry. I'm going to explain it to you in simple terms. So designated events are essentially these events that they want to guarantee the best players are at. So one of the problems with the PGA Tour in the past was that you didn't know what events the best players were going to show up to, right? It was kind of scattered. And the whole promise of Live was that you were going to have the best players in the world there every single week. Now, obviously, their roster is not strong enough to guarantee that. But you know when you go to a Live tournament, any Live tournament you go to, Dustin Johnson is going to be playing, Phil Mickelson is going to be playing, Brooks Kepka is going to be playing. So the point was that the PGA Tour wanted to replicate that and have these designated events where the top players in the world are guaranteed to be there and be in attendance. So anyone that finishes within the top 20 of the PGA Tour's player impact program are required to participate. Now, I think they can miss like up to two events a year, but there's 17 of these events, right? And we've already had a few of them. Century was one, the Phoenix Open, Genesis, Arnold Palmer, the players. Obviously, the Masters is one. RBC was this past weekend. Next one's Wells Fargo in May. We have the PGA in May, the Memorial in June, and so forth. So there's a bunch of these different tournaments. But the upside for this and the way they were able to convince the players to do this is two ways, and they both revolve around money. So the best example of the first way is that you can lose money if you don't attend the events. Roy McIlroy missed his second designated event this past week when he didn't attend the RBC Heritage after the Masters. And what happened was his bonus from last year, the player impact program, I think he had like $12 million and he had already been given nine of it. And they basically withhold a portion of that where if you don't show up to the tournaments, then they keep it, right? So they kept $3 million of Roy's. So not showing up to the tournament last week cost him $3 million. Now we're only about halfway through the schedule. So 
if he was going to miss another one, maybe he just decided to take the hit now. But hell, I don't care how much money you make. $3 million is a lot of money. Rory had to give it up by not attending all of these events. So the PGA Tour is guaranteeing that the players come because they will take your money from the PIP if you don't show up. But secondly, the players are okay with it because you can earn a hell of a lot of money if you do show up and if you play well. For example, the purses at this year's designated events, compared to the last, last year's same exact events, have increased by 78% on average. So if you look at one of the biggest ones is RBC Heritage, right? The tournament that just happened. The purse for that tournament in 2022 was $8 million. This past week, $20 million purse. It was a 150% increase on the purse. The Dell Technologies match play, it went from $12 million to $20 million, 67% increase. Wells Fargo went from $9 million to $20 million, 122% increase. So basically, all of these tournaments now have a purse that's either $20 million, $25 million. I think Century's $15 million. So anywhere between $15 to $25 million in purses at these tournaments. Again, the point is simple. The world's best players show up. They can win a shit ton of money, and the fans love it because the stakes are high, everyone's playing their best golf, and so forth. You're essentially creating the live model on the PGA Tour. Now, they obviously won't say that, but that's a big part of it. The other thing that the PGA Tour did that has transformed the PGA Tour over the last year, at least, is they reduced the playing field for the FedEx Cup tournaments. I think that's important. But more importantly, they now offer $5,000 travel stipends for players outside of the top 125 that missed the cut. So if you're outside of the top 125, you show up to a tournament, you don't make the cut. Historically, if you don't make the cut at a golf tournament, you don't get paid. So now they're going to give you a $5,000 travel stipend for your travels. Players that are now who make it to the PGA Tour from the Corn Ferry Tour and other tours like that are now guaranteed to make $500,000. That impacts 200 plus players. $500,000 guaranteed to make in a year. Guaranteed. 200 plus players. So the PGA Tour has all of a sudden found a lot of money. People have their reasons as to where it came from. Some people will say that Live Golf should get a lot of credit for this. I don't really care who gets credit. I think it's impressive that the tour has adapted so much. Again, I don't think this would have happened if Live Golf didn't exist. I think that's very clear. And it's obviously clear that the fans are enjoying this too. It's not just good for the players. Now, if we look at the viewership numbers, I think this is the easiest way to tell that the fans are enjoying it too. So if you look at the designated events, and we just look at the final round, the final round viewership for PGA Tour designated events this year, it's up 14% compared to last year. The PGA Tour social media viewership across apps like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube is up 31% year over year so far. And their Netflix show, Full Swing, has already been renewed for a second season. So look, I think the most obvious way to put this is that the PGA Tour is a better place than it's ever been in its life right now. Now, obviously, there's some things they need to work out. There's good golfers. We saw this with the Masters. There are plenty of golfers that are still pretty good. If you look at the the uh, the table from the Masters and who finished where, that are not playing on the PGA Tour. So I do think that it's important that at some point they get the best field playing. Maybe that happens soon. Maybe it doesn't. But at the end of the day, there were 12 out of 18 live players making the cut at the Masters. Brooks Kepkin, Phil Mickelson tied for second. Patrick Reed finished fourth. There were some good quality players that are not on the PGA Tour anymore. So we'll see what happens when it comes to live. It's to be determined if that model works, if they're able to sign more people, if the bottomless pit of money is actually bottomless. And we'll see. The interesting part to me is if it doesn't work out, what happens to some of these players? Are they actually banned for life? Are they going to allow guys like Brooks Kepka back on the PGA Tour? Obviously, they're going to be playing in majors if they have the World Golf Rankings. That's to be determined as well. But the bottom line is the PGA Tour is better than it's ever been. And I do think that some of this is due to live. 
This episode is sponsored by SoFi. SoFi is the all-in-one finance app, helping you bank, borrow, invest, and save. SoFi's mission is to help members achieve financial independence and realize their ambition, all in one app. It's the single app you need to get your money right. I'm a SoFi member, and I love it. SoFi is legit, and they comply with the strict regulatory standards of the FDIC, so you can be sure that your money is safe. Visit SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano to learn more. That's SoFi.com slash Joe Pompliano. All right, let's get back to this episode. All right, I want to touch on two other things before the end of this podcast today. First, I want to talk about Jalen Hurts' new contract. This was so damn impressive to me. Now, I don't need to explain to you guys who Jalen Hurts is. I think he's probably one of the most impressive people in the NFL and even in professional sports. If you just look at who he is, he's a coach's son. He, he's respectful. He's a leader. He's all these things. You can just look back at his career. He was the first true freshman starter in Alabama history, a quarterback in like 30-something years. He got them to the national championship. He won a national championship. He got benched in a national championship for Tua. Then he transfers to Oklahoma, balls out there, wins a Heisman, gets drafted, becomes the Eagles starting quarterback, reaches the Super Bowl, and now he is the highest paid player in NFL history. That's like a damn movie script. That is insane to me. He got a five-year deal, $255 million extension. About $180 million of that is guaranteed. He's now the highest paid player in NFL history. And the other cool part about this deal, I'm sure you've seen on social media, I've been tweeting about it. Other people have been tweeting about it also. The deal was done by Nicole Lynn of Clutch Sports Group. Now, Clutch is famous because it's obviously Rich Paul's agency who was started basically with LeBron James. It was a basketball agency. Now they've transitioned and they've started to sign other athletes. Nicole Lynn was recently promoted as the head of football operations at Clutch. So she has been an NFL agent since 2015. She was the first woman to join Players Rep, one of the top agencies in the NFL at the time. And she signed her first client at 26 years old. This past year, she became the first black woman to represent a player in the Super Bowl when Hertz and the Eagles made it to the Super Bowl. And now she represents Hertz when he signs the richest contract in NFL history. Now, the most fascinating part about this is how she landed Jalen Hurts. So again, if you follow me on Twitter, you have already seen this, but I think it is amazing. She literally DM'd Jalen Hurts on Instagram. After his final game in Oklahoma, his career ended, and she said, hey, have you found an agent yet? Have you picked an agent? If not, I'd love to link. That's literally what she said, and I quote, hey, have you picked an agent? If not, I'd love to link. He obviously answered. They connected. She ends up signing him as a draft pick, and now she negotiates his deal. Now, she was a good agent before this. She represents other players too. Quinnen Williams, Miles Garrett, Bijan Robinson this year, Evan Neal of the Giants, and a few other players. She has other people on her roster, but I do think that this has elevated her career, obviously. She does an amazing job. She's with Clutch now. Look, you can say Jalen Hurts earned this deal. He absolutely did. He put in the work. He overcame all this stuff. He made it to the Super Bowl. He balled out on the field. He earned this $255 million extension. But if she did not get him this extension, if he signed for less, if it wasn't a record-breaking deal, if he got $200 million or $220 million, or if it was a team-friendly deal, she was going to get criticized. That's just the nature of the business, right? Someone that comes in that is like her, that is not traditional in the sense of an agent, and is trying to break barriers. So I do think that it was important for her to be able to reach this historic deal. I'm happy for Jalen Hurts. He's obviously been through a lot over the last few years. The Eagles seem to have their player of the future, their quarterback of the future. There's a no trade clause. Now, the Eagles and, and GM Howie Roseman are some of the most creative cap people in the world. So my guess is that some stuff happens to this contract over the next few years, whether they push it out, whether they give more extensions, whatever it is, where the cap number ends up changing several times over the next five years. But regardless, he's going to make a hell of a lot of money. 
She did a great job. She's getting praised tremendously on social media right now, and rightfully so. My guess is that she'll probably end up signing more clients too. This is good for Clutch. This is good for Nicole. And it's good for the NFL in general. These, these are good headlines. Players are making more money than ever before. The cap continues to go up because revenue goes higher. So I'm happy for all of them. Awesome, awesome, awesome news. Now, the second piece of this that is also related to the NFL is the Washington football team. So I'm sure some of you have heard by now that Dan Snyder, perhaps one of the worst owners in sports history, certainly one of the worst owners in NFL history, is selling the Washington Commanders. I don't even have time to go through all the things that he has done wrong over the last two decades. It's literally insane. He bought the team for about 750 or $800 million, depending on kind of how you count the loan in 1999. The purchase price is just over $6 billion. That's a 700% increase over the last, we'll call it 24 years. Really, 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 really impressive. Obviously, not many people have the opportunity to buy an NFL team. If you would have parked your money in the S&P 500, you actually would have seen a similar rate of return compounded over those two decades. But that's neither here nor there. You wouldn't have obviously had as much fun. Now, the interesting part about this is who's buying the team. Josh Harris, who's a co-owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, he owns the New Jersey Devils and so forth, is the lead investor in this group. The ownership group also reportedly includes Mitchell Rawls and NBA legend Magic Johnson. Now, it's not exactly clear who else is in this group. Typically, there's a bunch of different people, some minority investors, a majority investor, et cetera. We don't know how much Magic Johnson is actually buying of the team. It could be a very small percent. It could be a meaningful percent. We don't know yet. I'm sure that information will come out at some point. But this will be the highest price ever paid for a sports team, ever, ever, $6 billion. The NFL trajectory of these franchises, the valuations look like a damn hockey stick. These teams were going for $2 billion a few years ago. $6 billion is insane especially for a team that you now have to go build a stadium for. There's a lot of other stuff that goes into this, and I promise I will do a different podcast at some point, breaking down all of this when the news is final, and we have more details on the investment group and everything like that. I will do that. But today I want to talk about one specific thing. There was a news report the other day that there was a new bidder that is bidding on the team. And I don't know who exactly started this, but at the end of the day, they're saying that Brian Davis, who's a former Duke basketball player, he played with Christian Lee came in last minute with a $7 billion bid on the franchise. Now, the reason I want to talk about this is simple. I don't know, Brian, you know, I, I don't know about his bid even necessarily. But the rumor is that he had a $7 billion bid, which is $1 billion higher than the bid by Josh Harris and the other people. So if you're obviously someone who knows Dan Snyder or anyone that has been in and around the Washington franchise over the last two decades, you know that Dan Snyder would probably accept the highest amount, regardless of who the new owner is. But the facts are, from everything that I've read and everything that I know, from other players, from other athletes, from other people in and around the business, this bid is completely bogus. Brian Davis does not have $7 billion. Front Office Sports and other outlets today were reporting that this money is coming from the Middle East. Obviously, the NFL would never approve that. And all you have to do is Google his name for literally two seconds, and you'll see a ton of lawsuits against him. He's done a bunch of real estate stuff with Leitner. He actually almost bankrupt Leitner a decade ago by getting him into some bad real estate deals. Sean Merriman was on Twitter talking about how he sued him. He loaned him $3 million. He never repaid him. Sean Merriman ended up getting paid $4 million in court. He tried to take his house, he said, but that obviously didn't work. He got paid $4 million instead. He's done this to a bunch of different athletes. This is a bogus bid. If you actually look at the original report and the source reporting where this came from, I think the rumor was from the CBS affiliate WUSA 9 in D.C., and if you look at the initial report where this came from, they're claiming that he gets his money from intellectual property. He sold his intellectual property. What the hell does that even mean? 
what does that even mean? How are you going to sell your personal IP for $7 billion? Most sports fans have probably never even heard of this guy. It's bogus. It's not happening. And the reality is that the Josh Harris bid has actually already been sent to the NFL. So the way this works is obviously Josh Harris has bankers. They work through this deal. The Washington commanders have bankers. They work through the deal. They come to an agreement in principle. So they write up this contract. They come to an agreement on the price, all the terms, et cetera. This agreement now gets sent to the NFL legal office. The NFL takes a look at it. They go through all the details. They look through everything. They tighten up all the buttons and so forth. If they agree with everything, they'll send it back to the parties for signing to guarantee this contract to actually sign it and move forward. Maybe they have some things they want changed. Maybe they have some terms they want changed. Maybe they want something else changed, whatever it is. If that's the case, then they'll tell them, change this stuff. We don't like this, et cetera. My guess is that the agreement's probably pretty standard. The bankers that work on these agreements usually work on the agreements across different sports leagues. They know what to expect, how the agreement should look, and so forth. So if it gets agreed by the NFL, it'll then go back to the commanders and Josh Harris's team to sign. They'll sign the agreement. Then it'll go back to the owners, and the owners will improve him as the new owner of the team. Now, I don't foresee Josh Harris having any problems being approved by the other owners. He owns other professional sports teams. If you were to make a map of all the sports teams in the United States professionally today across the NFL, MLB, NBA, whatever it is, there's actually a huge amount of overlap. It's like basically like, you know, like 15 to 20 different people that are all connected in some way. And some of them own multiple teams across different leagues. Some of them own one. Some of them work together. Some of them are, you know, had similar career paths, whatever it is. But there's this huge web that connects a lot of these different people. Josh Harris is in that web. He will get approved. There should be no problem there. I don't foresee that happening. And the reason why I say that is because the other part of Brian Davis's bid is he would never get approved. Come on. You think they're going to let in a guy that, one, is taking money from the Middle East? That's obviously shady when it comes to trying to get free agents and other stuff like that. But number two, someone who has faced a number of different lawsuits has almost bankrupt other investors and partners of his. That's not the type of business the NFL runs. They run a club, a billionaire's club, where they can decide who gets in and who doesn't. That's what they'll do here. Josh Harris will almost certainly be the new owner unless Dan Snyder does something absolutely crazy at the end of this day. But I don't foresee that happening. My guess is Josh Harris is in, Magic Johnson is in, their investment group is in. We see a record $6 billion plus price for the franchise, and these numbers are only going higher. Look, there's other teams that are going to sell too. There's rumors that the Seahawks could be coming on the market soon. There's other rumors about the Cardinals and other teams like that. These teams are only going higher. Obviously, Washington is a premier franchise in that market. But these valuations, they're just going higher and higher and higher, especially with a labor piece locked in and TV deals locked in for the next decade. They're going higher. Trust me. NBA is doing the same thing. MLB is doing the same thing. Media rights are only going north. That's it for today. Please, 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 please make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you're not doing it already on Apple or Spotify. And more importantly, share this podcast with a friend. I want to challenge all of you to share this podcast with one friend. I'm not good at public math, but if I did the math, I think if we all share with one friend, we would double the listenership overnight. Now, I'm not expecting that, but at the end of the day, thank you so much. I appreciate you for listening to this podcast, and we will chat later this week.